Apart from reducing uncertainty, going green also benefits the bottom line. Companies that fail to make the transition risk being left in the dust. Of course, that's exactly what Amory Lovins has been predicting for about 30 years now. More than predicting it, he's been making it happen. The centennial issue of the Wall Street Journal named him one of 39 people in the world most likely to change the course of business in the 1990s. Amory started on his soft path in the late 1960s while a student of physics at Oxford University in England. In an effort to heal his injured knees, he started climbing mountains and fell in love with nature. When Oxford rejected his proposal to pursue a doctorate on energy policy, just a fateful two years before the Arab oil embargo would occur, he dropped out of school to pursue what he knew had to be done. He hooked up with the late David Brower, the iconic conservationist, to write a book, and later went on to work with Friends of the Earth, um, which Brower founded. In 1976, Amory burst on the national scene with a now legendary article in Foreign Affairs Journal, advocating what he called a soft energy path of renewable energy and energy efficiency. Following quickly with the seminal book, Soft Energy Paths, he defied conventional wisdom and proved prescient. In fact, its once heretical graph for the future of escalating U.S. energy use is now right within a few percentage points of reality. He also identified the national electric grid as a brittle power structure vulnerable to terrorism and large-scale blackouts. Sound familiar? In 1982, Amory and his then wife and business partner, Hunter, um, went on to found the Rocky Mountain Institute, a think-and-do tank that applies interdisciplinary systems thinking to real-world problems. He became an oracle of green design solutions, and RMI, based in Snowmass, Colorado, helped launch a revolution in resource efficiency and energy policy. Amory's holistic approach to resource management has profoundly influenced business, government, and civil society around the world. He's worked with scores of industries and governments, especially in the electricity, automotive, semiconductor, chemical, and oil sectors, and with countless environmental groups as well. He's been awarded just about every environmental honor on the planet, as well as the MacArthur Fellowship. His work has been published in 29 books and hundreds of papers. But you would never know any of this if you were sitting down with Amory to get one of his famous back rubs or have a cup of tea. A Taoist by nature, Amory is a profoundly modest and humble person who holds the well-being of the world closest to his very big heart. Putting his heart on the line may be the real secret of success. So please join me in welcoming the incandescent Amory Lovins. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to convey a rather terse and unusual message that over the next few decades, this country can get completely off oil, not just imported, but domestic also, if we wish, and can revitalize both its industrial and its rural economy in a way that's profitable and will therefore be led by business. 
This thesis is uh, set out <coughs> in detail in a book. You can download it free from oilandgame.com along with all of its technical backup. All the calculations are perfectly transparent. It's with four co-authors and it's written for business and military leaders. I want to start with a little economic history. In the nine years before Drake struck oil in 1859, one of our biggest industries, which was whaling, ran out of customers before it ran out of whales. This came as a great shock to the whalers because they hadn't bothered to add up the competition, but it took five-sixths of their market in nine years. At the time, it was mostly kerosene and town gas made from coal. And oil feels a bit like that now. We have more than 20 years backlog of very powerful technologies for saving and substituting for oil that no one's bothered to add up before. So let's do that and see what we get. There are two big reasons to want to win the oil endgame, both national security and national competitiveness. Both are at risk. We know about the big problems of oil. I'm here to talk about solutions. We need to worry about the competitiveness of the core of our industries, the companies that make cars, trucks, and planes, and employ over a million people one way or another in many of our highest wage jobs. It's not just Japanese and European competition that Detroit needs to worry about. Uh, China will enter the world market as a major exporter by 2010, and they integrate their car policy with their energy policy, which is really visionary. It came out at the end of June. It's based on very strong energy efficiency and leapfrog technology. They will not export your uncle's Buick. They're going to export cars that uh, use little oil and ultimately no oil because they're working on fuel cells as well. Uh, so how long do you think it will take for Walmart to start badging Shanghai Automotive? Meanwhile, uh, Airbus and Boeing are locked in mortal combat. There's something we can do about all this. We can save half the oil by using it more efficiently, and it's those same industries at risk making the cars, trucks, and planes that can make very efficient ones to do that job. We can displace another 20% of the oil with modern biofuels and displace the rest with saved natural gas, most efficiently and profitably via hydrogen. The net saving of doing all this would be about $70 billion a year, and we would add uh, at least a million net new jobs, not counting the million-odd that we would have protected meanwhile. To do this, we'll require about $180 billion of investment, have to retool the car, truck, and plane industries, and have to build a modern biofuels industry. And that will earn handsome returns and is financeable in the private capital market, but for the reasons I've just mentioned, it's well worth accelerating in a way that enhances customer choice and manages risk. So to do that, uh, our study proposes <clears throat> a rather unusual set of policies, not involving gasoline taxes and cafe standards, but rather some innovative policies that have a very broad appeal across parties, uh, would slightly reduce the federal budget deficit, dramatically reduce the trade deficit. And since we actually want it to happen, uh, we've designed these policies in a way that needs little or no federal law, uh, <laughs> but uh, can be done administratively or just at a state level. 
Of course, the benefit you get is not just the oil saving, which even at the low government forecast of 26 bucks a barrel would be over 130 billion bucks a year, but also tens of billions of dollars a year for the Pentagon in they're not having to move so much fuel around. We can treat countries that have a lot of oil the same as countries that don't have any oil, and other people in, around the world have no reason to think that everything this country does is about oil. And then we don't have to worry about its insecurity, volatility, possible depletion, and so on. There are lots of ways to get this done. But where we have to start is light vehicles, cars and light trucks, because they use um, 40 heading for 50 percent of the oil and are responsible for most of its growth. I think a lot of people haven't realized about the physics of a typical car is that about seven-eighths of its fuel energy never gets to the wheels. It's lost first in the engine, powertrain, idling, and accessories. Of the one-eighth that does get to the wheels, half of it goes to heat the tires and road or to heat the air that the car pushes aside, and only about 6% ends up accelerating the car and then heating the brakes when you stop. In fact, less than 1% of the fuel energy ends up moving the driver after more than a century of devoted engineering effort. This isn't very gratifying. Uh, <laughs> moreover, three-quarters of all the fuel energy that your car uses is caused by its weight, and every unit of fuel you can save at the wheels means another seven additional units you don't need to waste getting that energy to the wheel. So you have about an eight to one leverage if you make the physics of the car better, particularly by making it much lighter weight. This was long thought to be impractical because of both safety and cost, but both of those objections have now been resolved by new developments in materials and design. For example, here's a handmade, very expensive carbon fiber supercar, a Mercedes SLR McLaren that got T-boned by a VW Golf running a red light. It popped a carbon side panel off the McLaren and scratched the panel, so they'll have to fix the scratch. And they popped the panel back on, drove away. The Golf had to be towed. It was totaled. Uh, but if you were to look inside the front end of this McLaren, you would find a couple of two-foot-long woven carbon fiber cones weighing a total of 17 pounds. That 17 pounds of material can absorb the entire crash energy of that car hitting a wall at 65 miles an hour because these materials can absorb six or even 12 times as much crash energy per pound as steel and do so more smoothly. So we no longer have a contradiction between making cars uh, light for efficiency and safe and big for that matter, which is protective but without the weight which is hostile. So we can end up saving oil and lives at the same time. And also, by the way, the cars can get cheaper to manufacture. Now, quadrupled efficiency for cars and light trucks turns out to be affordable without compromise. Two-thirds of the fuel saving you can get by redesigning a typical midsize SUV is from cutting the weight in half. And I think the best way to do it is probably with advanced composites like the carbon fiber that we use in Formula One cars and sporting goods. But if that doesn't work out, you can do about the same thing with new ultralight steels. And everybody knows how to make cars out of steel. So that's a good backup technology. And you can nearly redouble the efficiency of today's hybrid cars, but without costing more, because the smaller propulsion system to run the lighter car and the simpler manufacturing uh, pay for the ultralighting. You can get a 66-mile-a-gallon SUV, a 92-mile-a-gallon family sedan that pay for themselves from fuel savings in three years. 
uh, assuming the government doesn't make it more difficult by adopting proposed new safety standards that would deliberately reward making cars heavier and penalize making them lighter, thus killing more people and killing auto exports. I don't think that's a very good idea. Uh, of course, to do this, you need to migrate the manufacturing technology to go from low-volume, high-cost aerospace technology to the high-volume and low-cost needed by cars. When you start doing the ultralight carbon composite trick for cars and making them hybrid electric, you get remarkable results. For example, here's a two-seater from Opel, 155 miles an hour, 94 miles a gallon. You can have all those properties at the same time. Here's a 408 horsepower version from Toyota. If you tromp on the accelerator too hard, it might break your neck. And if you do the same physics improvements, lighter weight, better aerodynamics and tires, better engines, you get more than doubled efficiency trucks at 25 cents per gallon of diesel fuel, doubled or tripled efficiency airplanes, uh, very cost effectively. Boeing's already test flown a couple of small versions of the splendid wing body plane, and also major savings of oil in buildings and industry. So when you add it all up, if you use incremental timid technologies, you can save a quarter of the 2025 oil use for $6 a barrel, or you can save half of it for $12 a barrel uh, using the best technologies already commercialized or being commercialized. No new invention is required. We're used to paying lots of dollars per barrel and not getting many barrels from the old corn ethanol technology where you just use the starchy part of the plant. But if you use the woody part of plants like switchgrass and poplar, you can get twice the yield with lower capital cost with a lot less energy input. So there's almost 4 million barrels a day robustly competitive with the government's low oil price forecast. And you can use the rest of the feedstocks without interfering with producing crops or getting land and water problems uh, to displace petrochemical feedstocks through a biomaterials industry. The switchgrass, by the way, can be grown on the conservation reserve lands because it has two or three meter roots. It's a prairie perennial. It will hold the soil better than what we now pay farmers to grow there that has essentially no value. This would have high value, so you could switch from subsidies to real revenue. And when you count that on carbon credits and wind credits, you could end up dripling or quadrupling net farm income. As a little indication of the maturation of biofuels, Brazil has already replaced a quarter of its gasoline with sugarcane ethanol, and they can undercut gasoline in the world market and do. They're starting to export it to Japan and China. They can't export to us because we have a tariff to protect the corn farmers. Um, they had to subsidize the ethanol to start up, but they've already earned that back 50 times over from the oil savings. And uh, their newest cars can burn 100% ethanol, 100% gasoline, or anything in between. So there are no captive customers. You get real competition. Europe last year made 17 times as much biodiesel as the United States as part of their strategy to get farmers off subsidy and onto real revenue. And a lot of that's distributed by oil companies under their own brands. And then the other big supply-side substitution is save natural gas. Instead of increasing our use of gas, most of the increase coming from liquefied natural gas, which is costly, controversial, and a terrorism risk, we could save uh, about 12 trillion cubic feet a year, two-thirds of it by saving electricity, especially at peak hours, because there it's made very inefficiently of natural gas. And uh, it would be straightforward within a few years uh, to save most of that gas 
and cut 40 or 50 odd billion dollars a year off our gas and electric bills and make blackouts and price gouging very much more difficult to occur. We have to address the problems of apparently cheap oil, uh, customers with very high discount rates and poor information, and most managers in the large organizations that make the things that use the oil uh, being comfortable with sustaining innovations, slightly better vehicles, more cup holders, but resisting disruptive innovations. Therefore, we need policy portfolio that turns those stumbling blocks into stepping stones, as Ray Anderson says, and speeds the uptake of advanced technology vehicles. The most important way, I think, to do that is fee baits, a combination of a fee and a rebate. It means when you go to buy a new light vehicle of whatever size you want, within that size class, there will be a variety of vehicles with different efficiencies. The least efficient ones you pay a fee for, the most efficient ones you get a rebate paid for by other folks' fees. And that's true at each size class. So it doesn't affect your choice between size. Um, and as a buyer, this means as a buyer you'll be looking effectively at the full 14 years worth of fuel savings, not just two or three. The automakers wanting markets uh, share will buy more efficiency up to the value of the rebate. So you'll get a lot more efficient vehicles coming into the market faster, and the automakers make more money this way. Then we want to address the problem, really the last frontier of welfare reform, that in rural areas and in cities with bad or no transit, uh, we have not yet achieved affordable personal mobility in the way that we've gone a long way toward affordable home ownership as part of the American ideal. So we suggest a couple of kinds of financial engineering that for an incremental cost of zero to three bucks a day can get a low-income household into a reliable, warranted, new, extremely efficient family car that they can afford to run. What a concept. And by the way, for, for every efficient car so financed, we will scrap almost one clunker, preferably the dirtiest ones, uh, and this will end up making a new million car a year market for Detroit that they wouldn't have had otherwise and they will make money on every unit. Then since governments at all levels buy lots of cars, let's be smart and buy the most efficient ones and use techniques like golden carrots that have been proven for aggregating demand to reduce manufacturer's risk to pull smarter cars into the market faster and let's offer a platinum carrot. That's worth stretching further for. It's a billion dollar prize for the automaker that first sells 200,000 really advanced vehicles. Or maybe you'd have consolation prizes in there too. But just to get the juices going. Uh, in the case of heavy trucks, the problem is that the fleet buyers don't know they can get doubled efficiency. I tried this experiment recently talking to the chairs of uh, two companies that run some of the biggest heavy truck fleets in the world said, did you know you could double your efficiency at 25 cents a gallon? They said, no, the truck makers never told us that. Well, let's build one and test it. And if it does what you say, we'll tell them that's what we want. That's the right answer. So that conversation's going on now. And in the case of the legacy airlines that can't afford to get efficient planes to dig out of their cost hole, if you want to help them do that, there's a way to do it via loan guarantees, coupled with scrapping the inefficient old planes because the, the worst fifth of the fleet is parked. If those go back in the air, they'll waste more oil and they'll block the adoption and development of efficient new planes. So the inefficient parked planes are worth more dead than alive and we're gonna put bounty hunters after them. Then 
there is R&D. Well, the kind of technology migration we need from, say, aerospace to automotive, the military has a very strong set of reasons of its own for wanting to do. So just as their R&D created the internet and global positioning system and modern semiconductor industry, I think it's time for them to uh, create a modern advanced materials cluster of industries uh, that will transform our vehicles and a lot more. Then, because the automakers have weak balance sheets, they and their suppliers should be able to get loan guarantees for retooling and retraining to make the advanced technologies that go into these vehicles. And there's also a menu of ways to encourage the shift from hydrocarbons to carbohydrates and of getting out of our own way uh, in other respects. Now, we've had big, fast changes before. When the auto industry switched under Henry Ford's leadership in the 1920s, from wood to steel auto bodies. That took six years. In World War II, when we had a real mobilization, they switched over to making jeeps and tanks and planes and munitions that won the war, and that took six months. Generally, though, it takes about 12 to 15 years to go from in that S-curve you see in technology uh, from 10% to 90% adoption. So our policies are focused on cutting the time it takes by at least three years to get to that first 10%. And we could actually be tooled up and making ultralight hybrids by 2010. And it's encouraging that when we paid attention before, we were saving oil so fast that at a given level of GDP, we'd eliminate a gulf's worth of oil imports every two and a half years. And if by 2025, all light vehicles were as efficient as the best hybrids on the market between now and next February, which will look pretty antique by 2025, they will save two gulfs worth or, or a sixth of all the oil forecast to be used. But once you start on that hydrogen transition, you're on an inexorable downward curve in oil use heading towards zero. And the only question is whether you get there in 2030-odd, about as far in the future as the Arab oil embargo is in the past, or 2040 or 2050. And you also have a wide range of ways to do it. For example, Dakota's wind power could make enough hydrogen to run at the levels of efficiency I'm describing every highway vehicle in the country without even using the gas. Now, there are a lot of reasons you might want to do what I've described. You might be concerned about national security or cost or jobs or the planet or our kids. But whatever your motive, it seems to me this is an endgame we ought to be playing to win. Thank you. I don't know if any of you ever saw the movie The Revenge of the Nerds. I think we just created a sequel here, but... 